Hey, welcome back, guys. New listeners, welcome. Thank you for checking in. It's uh, it's much appreciated. Um, look, I do apologise uh, for the delay this week. I, I had a um, unfortunate and unexpected family matter I had to tend to in Queensland, but um, but back now, back in Sydney, the cold, cold Sydney. Right today, we are catching up with a very good friend of mine, Alexa Tarazi. Um, I have met Lex out, geez, probably you know close to six years ago. I think I'd only been in Sydney for a couple of months, and um, yeah, we clicked. Um, and I think I knew, you know, very early on that that Lex was going to be, um, you know, a very good friend of mine for a very long time. And uh, Alexa, well, she has been involved in the fitness industry for for well over fifteen years now. Um, you know, she's in my eyes. Um, become one of Australia's most reputable personal trainers and sought after. Um, she does a lot of work with Maxim. She's, um, she's even done a little bit of work um, on the small screen, which we, uh, which we chat about in the podcast. Um, you know, she trains some of Australia's most high profile celebrities and corporates. And she's, uh, she's a massive advocate for mental health. I love the work that she's doing, um, you know, with living and, um, you know, just, just talking about, you know, her experiences and, um, yeah, look, she, she'd have to be one of the hardest working people I know and as it always is, it was a pleasure to sit down, uh, catch up first and foremost and, uh, and also learn a little bit more about her and her incredible journey. So, on that note, enjoy the podcast. Follow me, uh, or follow the podcast, or you can follow Alexa, you can follow me if you want. Yeah, up to you, but um, yeah, you know the drill. Apple, Spotify, like, subscribe, review. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the podcast. Catch up. What's up? It's Ryan Jones, your host, and you are tuned into the People Pod. Let's do it. Hello, friend. <laughs> Hello, old friend. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? How are you? How are you? You good? You well? Apparently, I'm you glowing. You're Mary? Apparently, I'm glowing. So yes, you, you know, are glowing. Maybe God. there's news. Jeez. Shit. I can't give a woman a compliment <laughs> these days without it becoming, a, becoming an issue. <laughs> Write a, write a complaint and put it in the complaint box at the door, okay? Can I wear is that again? I don't know. The suitcase. Do you see the suitcase at the front? It's full of complaints. Is that in case your girlfriend gets pissed off and gets to walk out? Again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Alexa. What up, Brian? Hey, talking to the mic a little bit. Oh. You bring it closer, dear. Don't drag the machine. Oh, shit. Nah, it's all good. Good to see you. Good to see you too, honey much. Oh, how's COVID treating you? You know what? Actually, pretty well. I yeah. made some big decisions during COVID. So it's funny. I actually had this conversation the other day because that's the question. It's not like, how's the weather these days? Like, how's COVID that's treating COVID, you? Yeah. And like, I almost felt guilty for saying that I was actually as okay as I am because, oh. you know, I think. It's Why do you feel guilty though? Because I think other there's people. so many other people out there really struggling. Like I knew a lot of people who, you know, either friends of friends or direct friends or close ones who lost entire businesses, lost their livelihood, sure. really, really, really had a rough time during it. 
And, um, you know, for me, it's kind of one of those things, like I've had so much shit happen in my life yeah. that my reference point for like pain and trauma and shitty things happening <laughs> is so high <laughs> that COVID was like, oh, is this all you got? Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like one of those things, like every time something big You're has like, happened. like, this is a Tuesday. <laughs> 100%. Like, okay, what else is going to happen here? What do I do with this? And how do I get around that? And how do I make it work for me? And it's kind of funny because every time that's happened, like every time something big has happened in my life. Yeah. Um, especially something negative, I've always managed to make a positive out of it. And, you know, for me, it changed my business model again. And yeah, I look, I honestly, yeah. I couldn't be happier. I have no complaints. I think that's actually, that's, it's funny you say that because that's one thing I've always admired you for is, you know, you get knocked down, you get back up again <laughs> and we'll talk about the boxing. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to bring out those photos. I, I saw that the photos my, the other was, day. That was my finest moment. Oh, that like, nose yeah. cast. What yeah. did you get hit by? Yeah. Well, yeah. let's talk about it now. Fuck it. <laughs> well, look, I mean. How did it start? Actually, introduce yourself. Oh, shit. Who are this you? This pressure. Who am I? <laughs> I am Action Alexa, a.k.a. Awkward Alexa. Um, perpetually single. Um. <laughs> I know that uh, a lot of my <laughs> listeners are of the male. <laughs> uh, yeah, should we get that Slide up in them DM. Oh, yeah. what? oh shit. Um, I, I guess I'd say, I'm, what, I'm a personal trainer. Personal trainer. Motivational speaker. To the stars. Advocate. Oh, you know, the funny thing is when I first ever did an interview in Sydney when I got here like seven and a half years ago. and they Have you only been here for seven and a half years? Only seven and a half years. Oh, shit. We should talk about the night we met too because, yeah. again, like, yeah, it was a very funny night. But... Nothing like that, people, just in case you're wondering. Yeah, uh, he'd yeah, be so lucky. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Heels on the shoulder, <laughs> walking down the street. Hello, Ooh. darkness. Oh, God. Don't even go there. Um, but yeah, the first one, the first interviews I ever did, and mm. they were, they classed me as a celebrity trainer. And I was, my first question was like, but how am I, like, am I a celebrity? Oh, my God. And they're like, no. Oh, you thought that? Yeah. Then they were like, no, we mean like you train celebrities. And I was like, yeah, 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 nobody knows who you are. <laughs> oh, shit. Celebrity okay. trainer, you're like, I made it. I made it. I'm in the it. big smoke. Yeah, I know, not so much. Um, so, yeah, I guess training, training, mental health, motivational speaking, yeah. and the speaking thing is kind of a new thing for me. So, yeah. yeah. And Hong Kiwi, fellow Kiwi. Kiwi. Um, fellow Warriors I'm, you know what? Mm. Just your Warriors supporter. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, don't ask me what footy oh, team I support. This is not a way to start a podcast. I'm sorry, I can't help myself. <laughs> Everyone should stop listening right now. I'm not doing my top 20. <laughs> you, said, you said you were an open book. <laughs> oh, I've been disowned by New Zealand. New Zealand has disowned me. Okay. Um, yep, so I was, I was actually born in the UK. I didn't know. Oh. Do you know that? I have huh? dual nationality, so I am a bit of a mongrel. Oh, or as someone said to me, you're a bit of this and a bit of that. <laughs> you got a strike of this in you, a strike of that. Um, I was born in the UK, so both my parents were British military. So my dad was a oh. my dad was a major in the British Army. My mum was a medic specialising in gunshot wounds, and that's how they met. Shit. So, yep, so my dad was like six foot two, and his nickname was Bones. My mum, he was brunette. My mum was five foot, like barely five foot. Um, flaming red hair, skin and bones. Yeah. And I am 5'8", blonde, built like a brick shit house. So don't know what happened, but I went to military. <laughs> Mixed up in the hospital. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could explain a few things. Um, the postman looked like. Yeah, good question. <laughs> I shouldn't. I probably got a photo somewhere. Um, 
But yeah, I went to military yeah. school until I was ten. Is that so, right? Yeah, I used to. I used to know German, funny enough, because I lived in Dusseldorf. I speak German. Do you? No. Sprechen Sie Deutsch? Sprechen Sie Deutsch? Guten Tag. Ooh, you do. Was cool. ist das? Well, I actually travelled Germany uh, with an ex of mine, f- uh, probably eight years ago. And I was picking it up. The more beer I drank, the better at German I got. Funny that. Isn't that weird? That is weird. You know, the only thing I can remember from my time in Germany was was ist das? Das ist yeah. ein Eis. What's that? That's an ice cream. That's an ice cream. Because I really like ice cream. Oh, God, so. you love your sweets, don't you? <laughs> I had to hide all of them before you came here. I'll find them. They're here somewhere. I just, yeah, stash my pack of snakes. Um, but, yes, yeah, so I, I moved to New Zealand when I was 10. And so I spent the majority, like, from 10 to 27 in Hong uh, in New Zealand, and then you when I and then I moved to Hong Kong. Yeah, when I was twenty seven. And, um, and you hang on, this mm-hmm. is not many people will know this, but you spent a bit of time on the screen, on the small screen. Oh, oh yes, I did. And you said my fellow reality TV. Oh, good God, you know what? I yeah, I you did the show. Oh my God, called City Girls, and they took five girls from the city and put us on a farm for six weeks and filmed it. And it was quite the experience. I shared sheep. I was part of a docking gang. I crashed a trailer. I fed some cows the wrong mix of like pharmaceutical drugs. Sorry if I poisoned anyone. (laughs) And I fucking shot a cow. Like, and they put the screening of like, they put the ad for that with me bawling my eyes out in the middle of the Oscars. Like, in the middle of the Oscars? In the middle of the Oscars. Hang on, in the advert. In the ad, in the (laughs) advert. God darn. There was me like bawling my eyes out on national TV. And there were so many letters written and like, you've traumatized that poor child. And, uh, but I did have, this is probably, I should have taken up some offers back then because I was having like farmers from around the country write into, you know, the production company wanting a wife. (laughs) Hello, farmer wants a wife. Why am I still here? Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. So, and I remember getting on an Air New Zealand flight. Yeah. And they had bought three episodes of City Girls and I was absolutely fucking mortified because I was like, oh, my God, people are going this plane. And if they happen to scroll through here into reality TV, there I am. And this is awful. Wow. Yeah. Oh, well. What an experience. Yeah. <laughs> so reality TV and then over, uh, over the HK. Over to HK. Seven, eight. Seven and a half years. I met a boy, funnily enough, Mm -hmm. um, who was a Kiwi. So I go halfway across the world and I meet a Kiwi who happens to be an (laughs) ex-footy player and ex-fighter. Ticking all the boxes. Oh, my God. Anyway, uh, seven and a half years later, that didn't work out. Where in Hong Kong were you? I was in... I love Hong Kong. I hate Hong Kong. Well, now you do. Never going back. Um, I lived in mid-levels, so I was on the main island. And you did, before anyone asked, no, I was not cultured enough to learn Cantonese. I did try, and they told me it would be easier to learn Mandarin for six months and then make the switch. Um, the only thing I remember and picked up was Okela. Okela, you still, which you still use today. Which I still use. And everyone's always like, okay, L-A, what? Um, Yeah. What about those... Filipino rock bands that just reeked the streets of Hong Kong. Was it Wan Chai? One, Wan Chai? Wan Chai. I'm surprised that you survived Wan Chai, to be honest, because oh. the Wan Chai and its ping pong balls are infamous. So, <laughs> yeah. Can't say I went to any shows. Sure. No, yeah. At all, ever. <laughs> <laughs> and then you found yourself in the Big Smoke, Sydney. I did. Yeah. Best decision I ever made. I was in a. I'm sort of I'm sort of loath to say a toxic relationship, but it was for me. Like he okay. was a, he was a great guy, but he's just not great for me. Yeah. And um, when I realised it wasn't working, like I turned into one of those chicks that 
was like, I hate my relationship. Oh, this yeah. is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong. And I was like, I caught myself in every conversation having nothing good to say. And I was like, oh my God, you are one of those girls. Um, yeah, <clears throat> I decided that the best thing to do was to kind of move. And it's funny, like my whole, I guess I'd say big break, I suppose. I actually got an email to audition for um, Biggest Loser UK as one of the trainers. Oh God, and I was going to say you weren't. Yeah, well, I didn't have I didn't have a showreel. I'd never really done any TV work up to that point. But one of my clients was um, a lady by the name of Anna Corrin, and she was a CNN foreign correspondent. Anna Corrin, yeah, yeah, I know. No, you don't. I don't know her personally. <laughs> I know of her. God, do you? Yeah, really? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, because only because she's still working for CNN. Oh, well, there you go then. Yeah, yeah, She's yeah, a legend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so she was actually, yeah, she was my, my first, I guess, celebrity client. So you got into personal training in Hong, um, Kong. Hong Kong. Yeah. I, I'd always been into fitness. So like sure. through school, like I was a straight 180 at school, yeah. teacher's pet, and then turned 15, kind of met boys and decided that I wasn't going to be straight 180 anymore. Yeah. And I got into sports at the same time. Yeah, okay. Um, so it was my kind of rebellious phase, I guess. And I used sports as like an outlet for me. So I played soccer um all the way up until i was 27 right yeah no actually longer than that what position really to like nearly 30 i was a striker well, yeah. i was never particularly skillful but i was just really quick and so people would just lob the ball over and i would just run yeah, yeah and yeah. then smack it in and god help anybody who got in my way because <laughs> all through uni i wrestled and played american football two other things that most people don't know about me i wrestled wwe style <laughs> <laughs> under the name glacier <laughs> oh, I'm searching that. Surely there's some content. No, this is how old I am. It was before the internet. Before the internet? <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought, hang on, hang on. I'm doing the maths in my head and something's not working out. Oh, <laughs> it was, no, it was before smartphones. Yeah. So, no, You've been telling no, me you're 37 for the last seven years. Oh, mate, I'm still 39 <laughs> in articles, so I'm just going to roll with that. Um, um, yeah, yeah, so I did that for uni. And wow. that was fun. Yeah, I scared little children as a day <laughs> job. It was great. My entrance song was Prodigy. It was what? like... Smack my bitch up. Yep. What's it? That's it. Aggressive. I like it. I know. And I like got on those ropes and man, I screamed wow. the shit out of yeah. those ropes. And I jumped all over the shop and that was good. We toured. And then I found out that it was actually a... It was kind of like a Christian lesbian cult. And wasn't <laughs> such a... <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, so God. I, so I stopped. Yeah. Because it got really uncomfortable yeah. when women were quite, like, getting really comfortable being headlocked between your legs. And I was like, this is... Getting comfortable? Like, mm, not sure about was this that, now. Uh, what's, oh, what was that? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, look, not that there's anything wrong with that, but no, no, it no, wasn't no, no, for me no, at that you, particular yeah. stage of my life. And it yep. was just a little bit... The whole situation and the guy that was heading the whole business up was a bit odd. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I stopped doing that. And then I played American football. Oh, thanks, no Toby. Um, and that was fun. And I just liked hitting the shit out of people. So I played um, linebacker and wide receiver for four years for a team called Tamaki Lightning. And I was the only little white girl in the whole team. Who was that? That was in Auckland. In Auckland. Yep. And then we talk about the East Warriors. East Tamaki? It was actually. <laughs> East I spent my weekends in like South Auckland. So, and it's funny because Monty Beetham was one of my best mates talking about the Warriors. Yeah. They used to be my favourite team because I used to know, like, a lot of the yeah. boys were my best mates. So Wadinga Korpu, myself and Robbie Mears were, like, the three musketeers. Yeah. So I used to, like, basically block for them in terms of they would get drunk in the weekend. I worked in a bar. Yeah. And they would come in and they would see these chicks there and I'd be like, hell no, have some standards, I'm taking you guys home. <laughs> and <Hang> so... <laughs> 
I was looking after my friends. <laughs> oh, you were getting looked after. Like that. <laughs> oh, this is all wrong. This is all wrong. <laughs> oh, fuck. Um, yeah, right, because my, my parents grew up in South Auckland as well, Manurewa. Yeah, right. So that's so I was yeah, yeah, sort of born there and then obviously we travelled down to down to the mountain, sort of spent my primary school years if you if, if you will there. But um Amazing. Well yeah, I love I mean look, I loved it. It was yeah. like some of the best years of my life. Yeah. Um and I had such a good one. Like the girl who taught me to tackle ended up being um the captain of the New Zealand women's rugby league team. So really? I learned from the best and I just liked hitting people. Who so is that? Um, oh my god, I can't. Papali'i wasn't it her, was it? No, I was Papali'i. No, no. Um, but yeah, so so Hong Kong, you, that, shit, that would have been pretty wild time. Hong Kong. Before I went to Hong Kong, I actually got hypnotized because I wanted to stop drinking. I didn't want to go to Hong so Kong. So this was pre Hong Kong. Pre Hong Kong, like I've drunk. I've I had problems or issues with alcohol ever since I was fifteen. So two things happened when I was kind of fifteen, right? So. My mum was diagnosed with manic depression and I was being bullied at school. So my mum was diagnosed with manic depression and pretty much overnight my whole life kind of changed. So the person that you would normally go to to talk to about you being bullied at school, you couldn't because she was dealing with Yep. She was dealing with her own stuff. And we'd have conversations like I was terrified to bring friends home. Really? Because she was two completely different people. She, I could get the mum that I would walk in the door and she would be like, what do you want to eat, dear? Can I get yeah. you some snacks? You know, whatever. Or I'd walk in the door and she'd be like, you fucking slut. You're nothing but this. And like Jesus. at this point in time, like I was still a virgin. I hadn't done yeah, anything. Yeah, like yeah. none of the stuff that she you was had, saying was even relevant. You didn't even know what half those words probably meant. No. And it was just, and then she would never remember the conversation. So I couldn't even talk to her about what was happening because she denied the entire wow. situation. Um, do you th- sorry to cut no, you off. Do you right. think that was something that, like a post-traumatic um, disorder that she'd have from being in the military. Like, she well, or do you? I mean, th- look, I, probably there were probably components of it. Sure. Um, a lot of a lot of mental illnesses. Some well, a lot of the ones that I've had experience with have been partially hereditary. Okay, it's a hereditary. And our yeah. whole family had had issues with both addiction and mental illness. Sure. Um. And, but she, what had been the triggering point for her, she had, she was working at a drug and alcohol rehabilitation centre at the time and they built an alcohol store next to the rehabilitation centre. Asbestos came in through the window and she got really, really sick from that and that triggered a whole host of health problems. This is in South Auckland. This is, we didn't live in South Auckland. We lived, but it was, it's in Auckland. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, so she... She got really, really sick. Wow. And yeah, it was um, overnight, pretty much everything, everything changed. And so I kind of like, I was going to school and I was getting bullied. So my nickname at school was Alexa Anorexa, because kids are really mean. Um, And then I'd come home to that. And... Was was dad around at this stage? Dad was around. Dad was always been my rock. Like I always had a great relationship with my dad. But when this happened to my mom, my dad started drinking. Okay. So... I had to find outlets to cope with the stuff that I was going through. Because if you ask my friends what I was going through, I never told any of them. Like, no one had any idea what was going on at home. And I ended up going to find a gym. Is that because you were sort of embarrassed? embarrassed? Yeah. 100%. Like, imagine bringing a friend home and having your mum lose her shit. Yeah. 
you don't want anybody to witness that stuff because then, you know, you feel like you're going to get judged for that. And back in those days, like any sort of mental illness, any, you know, depression wasn't even a recognised textbook disease. Oh, it was, yeah. There was no education yeah. or awareness. No one talked about mental illness or suicide or anything. Yeah. You know, like it was just everything was swept under the rug. No one would have understood. There would have been so much judgment. And I already felt ostracised at school. Yeah. There was no way I was going to bring my circle of friends, the ones that I did have to experience that the thought of losing them too and oh, not and having a stable 100 percent. like yeah. then where do you go from there you know it, it just the gym for me when i found the gym that became my safe place sure. like that was my sanctuary yeah um and that's where i would go most pretty much every day on like a mission for muscles and it was the first place that i probably began to understand you know the connection between physical strength and then that mental toughness and the resilience that goes along with yeah. it. And that's something that I probably, you know, that pretty much, that was if we talk about pivot points in your life, yep. that was probably a pivot point for me. And, you know, I was really, really fortunate that my first experience that was in the 15? gym, that was at 15, wow. was a really positive experience because I could name a ton of people who didn't have a great experience the first time they walked into a gym and that has currently shaped the way that they feel about fitness now. For me... I met incredible people straight off the bat, yeah. who were really supportive, who wanted to see me do well, who had had similar experiences. So they kind of understood it. So you it was like relate. a judgment, 100%. Yeah. And it's amazing what happens when you have those people around you. And that's something I'm really passionate about now is like cultivating that little tribe of people. The community, finding you. your people. Finding your people, man, because there is nothing more important in this world. Like those are the people that shape you and inspire you and empower you and you feed off each other. And, yeah. You know, without those people, like who are you? Yeah. So, yeah, I was really lucky I found them early on. But then on the flip side of that, like, my dad started drinking. So his outlet was to drink. And I found the gym, but I also found his whiskey bottle. So yeah. I had this double life right from 15. And at 15, I actually drank my first full hip flask of rum. Shit. Trying to fit in at school and trying to escape on the weekend. Yeah. And um, I'd n after that weekend, like, I made myself so ill that I could never drink rum again. Yeah, right. But, yeah, that was my first experience with alcohol was at 15. Jeez, I have a and similar I, thing with oh, it. Forex. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just trying to light the mood a little bit, but <laughs> wow! Yeah. So that was it. Mm -hmm. And and how? When did you make the decision to go? Alcohol's not for me. It's such oh. a big part of it of it of an Australian and New Zealand culture. It's growing huge. Up. It's almost it's huge. Like it's almost the main thing. I'll go as far as saying it is. If you're not drinking growing up. And you're definitely not fitting in. No, hundred percent. Yeah, it's funny because they actually did a study, um, and they did a study on like on different sports and stuff, and different sporting codes, and like what would happen to teams if you took away one thing um, yeah. from them. And alcohol or beer was one of the things that they were talking about. And performance of a team dropped when they took away beer because for them that was part of the bonding experience as part yeah. of the team which is quite scary, really, to think that a performance of a team rests on their ability to be able to drink together. Wow. Um, but I, I have so many. Like, if I were to write a book on all the experiences that I've had while being drunk, like, it would be terrifying. Yeah. Um, you know, I've had occasions where I have got out of a cab, I've fallen out of the cab, hit my head in a curb, knocked myself out, been taken to hospital, ended up on a drip. I've had an experience where I got my drink spiked at a bar and nearly got raped by a couple of guys who tried to drag me into a park and was rescued by a passerby who took me home and wrote me a letter in my mailbox. I've got experiences where, um, 
you know, I slapped a cab driver once. Stuff I'm not, like, I am not proud but, of, yeah, you know, but, like, yeah. and I look back now and I think, dear God, what were you thinking? Yeah. You know, and I remember, at, like, when I was, I think I was, like, 24, and I remember being at a birthday party and one of my best mate's boyfriends came up to me and they're like, you know, your mates absolutely adore you. Yeah. But you make it really hard to be your friend when you're drunk. And I remember just crying and then drinking some more because I was really upset. That person that came up to me is actually Clark Gayford, who is Jacinda Arden's partner. No way. Yeah, he doesn't know that. Like, I've never told him. I probably should. Yeah. But I've never told him that he was the person that said that to me. And I've remembered it. And I still, it would still take me a further five years of having these incredibly, like, traumatic and dangerous things happen yeah. for me to actually make the decision that I needed to stop. So it, like, it just goes to show, like, people talk about not drinking. Like, yeah. it's just a thing that you do. Like, you stop eating sugar or you start going to the gym or you cultivate a new habit or whatever yeah. and it's 21 days and you build this habit. It's not fucking easy. It was one of the hardest things that I have ever had to do in my life. Best decision by far that I've ever sure. made. But probably the hardest thing because we live in a culture where it is more socially acceptable to drink than be sober. Yeah. And wow. I still, you know, I go to places and, you know, I'm always amazed by how confrontational it can be for other people around me, the decisions you make about your own life when they feel like they are being indirectly challenged, like their own lifestyle choices are being indirectly challenged well, that, just by you being there. It's funny that you say that because that's, and that's, what, that's what people think as soon as you say, and I've been around you when you've said, I'm not drinking or I don't need a drink, and they almost look at you like, oh, what's so good about you that you, could, that you, you think you can be here and drink? And, you can almost see it in their eyes and they're just like, oh, you don't drink. What's wrong with you? hundred percent. I'm just completely honest now. Like, I went, you know, people talk about like making up excuses or getting a drink that looks like alcohol yeah. or, you know, whatever. If someone says to me now, oh, what, you can't even have one drink for the ride. I'm like, no, my dad was an alcoholic and he died from it. Yeah. And they're like, good on you. Oh. Fuck them. Because I mean, what are they going to say? Yeah. You got nothing. Yeah. You know, do you really want to argue with that? And it's, it's funny. Like it, it still always used to amaze me. Like, even when you tell people how long you haven't drank for, like for me, it's been nearly 12 years. Wow. And, you know, you go out and they're like, oh, come on, surely you can have just one. I'm like, do you seriously think yeah. that I give a fuck enough, <laughs> you think yeah. enough that I'm going to throw 12 years of sobriety yeah. out the window just because you think that I should have one drink? Yeah. Are you fucking serious? And, and look, I know a lot of the time <laughs> it's like, Oh, I just want you to have a good time. It's like, look, I'm happy with what I'm doing. I, I'm going to have a good time. I mean, we've been in the club till bloody two o'clock in the morning before. I mean, you can you can <laughs> attest for the fact that the last Maxim party, I was dancing on a pedestal by myself yeah. in a dress. God help me. <laughs> you were dancing on them. So I was falling off them. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I don't. I don't but, I mean, yeah. it wasn't always that way. Like, was it really hard when I stopped? Like, I didn't just throw myself out. Yeah. into, you know, going out to pubs again. I didn't go out for six months yeah. because it's amazing how much – you don't realise how many DMs you have with people. And, like, now, you know, I remember the first time I went out again and some guy started coming out to me and talking about, like, something really deep and meaningful. And within, like, a couple of minutes, he's, like, spitting on me because he's that close. And I'm like, how – what? Chill where's first. people's concept of, like, personal space? Yeah. Do I not have any of this yeah. when I'm drunk? But you don't realise, like, the extent to which you're just involved. It all goes out the window, doesn't it? Really it really does go out the window. Um, so there'd be no social distancing there or no. whatsoever. <laughs> but, yeah, I didn't go out for ages. And then when I did go out, like, I, there was still a ton of judgment. But, you know, now it forced me to figure out who I was and yeah. why I needed to drink to be in those social occasions in the first place. Yeah. And for me, like, when I drank, I smoked. Yeah. Yeah, you know, no one would look at me and go, oh, my God, you smoked. Yeah. 
but I smoked for the whole time I was drinking. It was just a habit. Yeah. Um, I'm guilty of it. I do it all the time. You do. It's almost then, go hand in hand. 100%. Yeah. And that, again, that's part of the culture. Yeah. You know, it just, it's, it's more normal to do that than not. Yeah. And, you know, smoking was one of those things where it actually, you met people. Because if you wanted a cigarette, especially when you couldn't smoke in the bars anymore, everyone went outside. So you'd meet all these people yeah. in the street having you a found cigarette. something in common. Exactly. Oh, so oh, it's, the dirty smokers. Yeah, it's really sad. Yeah. Like, it's really sad that that should be the case. Um, but, you know, I don't want people to think I'm getting on my high horse here and being like, oh, my God, if you drink, you're such a bad person. No. It's no. not like that. I don't that, think people – I think it's just and, – and, and what I want people to understand, it's a choice that you've made and you're entitled to that choice. And I think, you know, I think what really needs to happen in this day and age is people need to change the stigma around people making decisions not to do it. Like, take that thought process of, oh, what's wrong with her? She's not drinking. It's like she just doesn't want to drink. Yeah, and she just can still have fun. Absolutely, and not treating us like we are, you know, not ostracizing us or treating us like we're freaking pariahs. Yeah. Because we're still able to have fun with the best of them. Yeah. Um, Look at that leper in the corner when that's not drinking. Yeah. But, you know, in saying that, you know, there are definitely occasions where sure. I am not the life of the party. As soon as it starts going downhill, yeah. it's kind of like you do feel like you've got absolutely nothing in common. Yeah, well, you probably don't. No. It's, it's you, smart. It's a smart idea. Well, yeah, and I, like usually now, like if I know I'm going out somewhere, I offer to drive because yeah. it's an easy solution. You're carrying yeah. car keys, no one actually even questions you. Yeah. So that's actually like if people don't feel comfortable sharing as to why they're not drinking, yeah. that is definitely like I found one of the easiest ways around it. I'm driving. I'm driving. Oh, good on you. Well done. Exactly. Well done, right? Yeah. yeah, not well done for quitting complete, but well done for driving. Well done for taking one for the team and driving <laughs> your mates around when yeah. you should be out doing it. Exactly. It's just easier to do that now though, I know. to say that. So, oh, yeah. But no, it was good. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I think the main thing now is we need to just be asking the question. It's not about the fact that people are drinking. Yeah. It's why people are drinking. Exactly. Are you drinking to have a really good, like, are you drinking because it's the only way you can have a really good time? What are you getting away from? What? Yeah, what are you trying to escape? Are you drinking because you really love the taste of wine and you want to enjoy it with your dinner? Awesome. Yeah. You know, look, you look at Europeans and they get taught to drink responsibly from a really young age and yeah. they really, they're connoisseurs. Yeah. They enjoy their wine. Yeah. I didn't get taught to drink like that. I drank because I wanted to escape, because I wanted to get drunk and I enjoyed the feeling of being invincible and yeah. feeling like I had complete control over my life. I think that's definitely as as kids growing up is sort of that 15, 16, 17 drinking and that, that new, um, that excitement around drinking and being able to take your like the feeling you get and you can, mm. you do, you feel invincible. That's, that's why people do it. But then I suppose as life goes on and people start getting more responsibility, then they start trying to get away from their, from their, their problems. hundred percent. And it's like when you're trying to quit, it's, it's a really sad reality that for most people you have to hit rock bottom. Yeah. You know, like for me, it was my dad's death. It was the turning point. You know, yeah. there were a ton of situations before that, that, it was definitely in my mind that it was something that needed to happen, but it took, you know, a traumatic event as a catalyst, like that that had to happen. And for most people, that sadly that seems to be the case. You know, mm. you either have to hit rock bottom or you have to have reached a point where the consequences of your actions are so great yep. that you have no alternative but to stop, like whether it's a job or a relationship or your health. It's like the edge of the cliff sort it's of thing. It's like it is. Yeah. And then, you know, there's nowhere to go but up. Yeah. Um, well, there is. It's one or the other really, isn't well, it? Yeah. I mean, you know, I have no I have no doubt in my mind that if I didn't stop drinking that I would be dead. Yeah. 100%. Wow. Yeah. And it's almost like is surely that's enough of a reason. 
to, to reassess, for people to reassess <sighs> how, why they're drinking? I don't know. Like, I mean, I had this conversation with my dad a lot because my dad was an alcoholic from the time, pretty much from the time my mum was diagnosed with manic depression. Sure. He okay. was an alcoholic. That's how he dealt, dealt with, it. with it. That was, you know, so I learned from the best. Like, that was a great crutch. Yeah. And I remember having a conversation with him, you know, one day where he was like, can you take me to the bottle store? And I was like, no, yeah. not enabling you. Like, yeah. I'm not doing this anymore. And he was like, well, if you don't take me, I'm going to drive. And he was drunk. And you're like, oh, my God, there's absolutely no talking to you. Yeah. And then, you know, me yelling and screaming at him and being like, you know, you're drinking yourself to death. Do you not understand that? Like, you're never going to see me get married. You're never going to see me have kids. You're never going to do all these things that a father should want to do. And he was like, Alexa, I really want to tell you I love you enough to stop. Yeah. But I can't. And I'm like, it was, it really hit home that when someone is in the throes of an addiction, you can't love them out of it. You can't hate them out of it. You can't guilt them out of it. Yeah. You can give them all the tools in the world, but if they don't really want to do it for themselves, yeah. if they don't feel like they have anything left that they want to live for, and that is their only enjoyment in life, like you have to make the decision as to whether you're going to keep any sort of relationship with them or whether you're going to walk away. Yeah. And I just, you know, I couldn't walk away from my dad. So no, I had not. to make the decision that I just had to accept him for who he was and, you know, take the lessons that I could learn from his journey and apply them to myself. To and your own life. It's sad that it would take his death for me to do that. It's, yeah, I, you really do. I'm trying to figure out the right way to word this, but like you only have control over you, yourself. You do, and how you respond you to can, things. You can influence people as much as you can, but at the end of the day, if they, yeah, if they don't want to make the change. I, I heard this quote the other day and it was, you know, um, all the shit that's going on with Will Smith and um, Jada. Jada. Yeah. And it was um, entanglement. No, it was. <laughs> <laughs> that's for people my age. No, but it was. So, so what it was, what it was is, is um, you know, she had to make herself happy. You know, basically Will Smith couldn't make, make her happy. And, and he, and he understood that. Yeah. So that's why, and, and I know it's totally different circumstances, but um you know, really, you have to make that decision yourself. Oh, you do. Yeah. You know, and the amount of people I get coming to me where they are looking at quitting alcohol because they want to lose weight. Yeah. And it's like, the weight you need to lose, honey, it's not on your body. Yeah. You know, it's the shit that you're carrying around yeah. with you. Like, that is why you're drinking. And it's a great analogy because if that is the reason that you were trying to quit, Good luck to you. Yeah. Because unless you're quitting for something that means something so much more than that, yeah, it's really difficult. Like I understood that I was either uh, that I was probably going to die if I didn't do it, or I would lose my job, or you know, like there was a whole host of things that I understood that I could never come back from if I continued to drink. Yeah. And you know, watching Dad and watching how heartbreaking it was was like I never want to do that to people. I don't want to be that person. Yeah. You know and. There is a there's a really cool longitudinal study actually where they they were studying twins. Okay. So genetically identical, environmentally identical, they were brought up the same way, and 30 years later they found the same twins. And these twins were living in an environment where their dad was an alcoholic who beat their mum. And 30 years later they found the same set of twins, and they didn't interview with them. And one was hugely successful and didn't drink, and the other one was down and out. He was an alcoholic who beat his wife. Yeah. And they asked them the same question, you know, they're like, how did you end up here? And they both gave exactly the same answer. 
well, my dad was an alcoholic who beat my mum. What else was I going to do? Yeah. And it's like, it's so true. You are the only person that can make those choices for you. Yeah. But everybody has those choices. Like my whole family were predisposed to alcoholism. My dad was an alcoholic. My dad's dad was an alcoholic. My dad's brother was an alcoholic. My dad's mum liked to drink. My mum liked to drink. Yeah. You know, I had everything rocking around. And there were times in my life where I was like, fuck it. Is this just who I'm meant to be? Yeah. Like, is this who I'm destined to be? Somebody who drinks. But everybody has that opportunity yeah. to make a change. And you were never too old to make that change. So, that, I mean, the willpower that you've taken to, like, it's, 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 a, I think it's amazing because I know what it's like growing up as a kid in New Zealand and Australia, you know, especially being around social parents and all the rest of it. Like, and you're still a very social person. So, like, you know, you should be very proud of yourself to be able to decide. Like, no, you should be. You should. You should. Um, so, yeah, you've had your own, wouldn't say your own, but, you're, you know, you've been around sort of, you know, by saying your, your father, um, mm. you know, obviously struggled with um, alcoholism and then your mother, you know, manic depression. So um, tell me about how you've gotten involved with, with the mental health side of things. Well, my mum... When I was 17, she tried to take her life okay. and I walked in. Yep. Um, and walked in. I walked in right as she was about to. And I just remember just standing there and just kind of like it was the most surreal moment because mm. you don't really know what you're looking at. And you're like, holy mother of God. Like I knew that we as a family were struggling. I knew I was struggling. I knew she was obviously having a rough time of it. But I had no idea that she was at a point that she yeah, felt like that wow. was her only option. And when you're, you know, you're confronted with it, it's it was one of those moments that I think, you know, again, we talk about pivot points. Yeah. I think that at some point I knew that this was a really important part of my story and at some point it would really shape who I would become. Yeah. And she physically survived that day. But something in our relationship died. Like that's yeah. the only way I can explain it because, like I said, there was no awareness or education or resources or support networks back then. And I think if there had have been, while they wouldn't have changed the diagnosis of her, yeah, it would have changed the way that I handled it. Sure. Because I did not know what was happening. I did not understand what was going through her head. I couldn't relate to it. Um, and in my eyes, all I saw was weakness. Yeah. You know, and it's it's funny because now I'm, you know, I'm an advocate for everything that is not that. But it's so hard when you're in that moment and you just have no idea what was happening. And it took me so long to forgive myself mm. for allowing our relationship to get as low as it did. Because after that day, like, I, I found it really hard to relate to her. I found it really hard to be around her. I found yeah. it really hard to look after her or support her because in my eyes our whole dynamic had switched like she was no longer my parent I was the parent yeah you know and I felt like she took that away from me and I felt like I had no support network and she basically pulled the rug out from under me I and think the key word yeah. that you said there was weakness yeah that that's what I thought that well that's um that's a stigma I think that I grew up around too you know not that I had in, had experienced you know, anybody that had, had tried to commit suicide or anything like that but I think you know my mentality growing up and um, kind of was uh, you know if you do that you know you you are weak and you know it's a very selfish thing to do and um, 
which there's so uh, that was just uneducated. I was just uneducated on it. Yeah. I think things are things are changing for the better nowadays. Um, and yeah, as you said, you're a big advocate for that. Yeah, well, I met um, I met the guys from Living when I first moved to Sydney. Actually, we were doing like um, they used to have this thing called the Plebs Pros and Personalities. Okay, it was like a twenty four hour treadmill run. Yeah, and you turn up and everyone's running on a treadmill for twenty four hours straight to raise money for charity. Right, and the charity they were supporting that year was Living. Yeah, and I remember the first time I met Sam Webb, one of the founders of Living, and he was hopping on a treadmill with a beer in his hand. And he looked like the life of the party. And I was like, how is oh, this Sammy? kid? He's <laughs> <laughs> talking character, <laughs> isn't he? Mental health charity. <laughs> yeah. What the hell? And then he actually like, oh, was, he actually DM'd. I had the, I had him up about this the other day. He actually DM'd my roommate because he had a bit of a crush on her. He thinks we were introduced. We were not introduced. He tried to hit up my roommate by Insta. <laughs> That's how we met. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. Yeah. And then he came in for a training session and we actually ended up living together for like six months. Is that right? Yeah. So he lived with me when I lived in Darling Point. Okay. Before Renee moved in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I saw how dedicated he was to everything. Like I would see him sit down to this plethora of emails with people knowing that he, you know, had a mental health charity who wanted to basically just dump all their problems under him and have them fix them. Wow. And he could never not reply to an email because he never wanted to feel like he was letting anybody down. So oh, he would man. be up all night. And the pressure of that, you know, having It's a lot these, of weight on your shoulders. It is, man. And like How I would, old would see he, him He would only been twenty early twenties. Like, yeah, early twenties. Yeah. And he would like he would be up in the middle of the night like packing orders for living, like getting the shirts out because they you know they had their whole yeah. apparel line. Yeah. And then um, the first time I ever spoke for them was when he was meant to be doing a charity boxing fight and he couldn't, he had to go somewhere else. And he was like, can you step in and say a few words for living in the ring? And that was the first time I ever spoke for them. Um, and then I started getting more involved with schools because after my whole experience with alcohol when I was younger and after my mum and everything, I really, I knew at some point I really wanted to be able to go back into schools and talk about my story to wow. let people know that they have other options. Yeah. You know, and that there is hope for them out there and that alcohol isn't always the answer. And, you know, if you're struggling um, at home, you know, people actually do care. People yeah. want to know that you're okay. And there are avenues of support. So I wanted to get out there and do that. And they gave me the opportunity to do that. And I did, I've done that for the last five years for them. So schools, corporates. Um, I was in the mines for four weeks last year. Spent four weeks underground. And yeah, that was wow. incredibly eye-opening. It's, it's such a diverse, um, yes, you've just rattled off four then. Like that's mm -hmm. But it just goes to show that mental illness doesn't discriminate. That. And that's what people need to remember. Yeah. You know, mental illness and suicide doesn't care how old you are, it doesn't care what colour you are, it doesn't care what you do for a living or how much money you make or how many freaking social media followers you yeah. have. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. You know, it can happen at any time to anyone. And, you know, we tend to forget that. We tend to think that if you have more money or you have more followers or you're more successful, you're yeah. less prone to it. But it's not the case. Yeah. So, yeah. Far out. Um, now, I wanted to talk about this, and it is <laughs> Kevin Hines. Yeah, he's a legend. Tell, tell, for, for the people that don't know Kevin Hines, can you just um, give a bit of a backstory and then sort of tell everyone about your involvement with it? Yeah, so Kevin Hines has made a documentary called Suicide, The Ripple Effect. Yeah. He is probably one of the biggest mental health warriors or suicide prevention advocates in the world. He spends pretty much, I think we worked it out, that he spends over 300 days a year speaking. Wow. Yeah, um, to anyone and everyone. And he is probably one of the most incredible storytellers 
that I have ever had the privilege of listening to. Now, he wasn't before, was he? He wasn't, no. And he, so Kevin also has a history of schizophrenia. Okay. He lives with visual and auditory hallucinations. And he tried to take his life by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And he jumped and he survived. Now, there's what well, I think it's like a 2% survival rate. So The Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. He jumped off that. And he, like he said, on the day that he decided that that was what he was going to do, he got on this bus filled with a ton of sightseers. And he was bawling his eyes out. He was just, he'd had a bit of a psychotic break. He was bawling his eyes out and he got on this bus and he was like, right, if anyone asks me how I am, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Not one person on the whole bus ride, while he was bawling his eyes out, asked him if he was okay. And as he stood on the side of the Golden Gate Bridge before he jumped, this one girl came up to him and he thought she was going to ask. He was like, oh, I'm not going to have to do it. And she came up and she asked him to take a photo of her. She walked away and he jumped. And... And this is what I hear from, like, I have a few friends who have tried to take their life Mm -hmm. and they've been unsuccessful, thank God. But they've all said that the minute they made that decision or the minute they did it, they don't get a sense of peace or a sense of fulfillment or a sense of finally, you know, relief or anything. It's like, what the fuck have I just done? And he said the minute he jumped, the minute his hands left the railing and he jumped, he had this incredible sense of, oh, fuck. Please, God, save me. I don't want to die because my family will never know that I love them. And he said that he, you know, he hit the water and pretty much his entire body inside shattered on impact. But he floated to the surface and he was still alive. Like he was coherent at this point in time. And he said that as he was floating on the surface, like he was vaguely aware of what was happening around him. But obviously, you know, you'd have to be pretty out of that point. But he said that he could feel something underneath him, like circling him. And he was like, fuck me. I've jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge to survive just to get eaten by a fucking shark. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, he um he gets picked up by the Coast Guard, he gets into hospital, and he's doing this talk show like a couple of years later. And okay. they've they they've received letters and phone calls in, you know, as you do when people are on talk shows. And there's a guy that rings in. And he basically said, he's like, fuck, Kevin, thank God you are alive. He was like, I was on the bridge that day. I was less than three metres away from you. And I never knew to this day whether you survived or not. He's yeah. like, but the shark that you talk of doesn't exist. It was a sea lion. And it basically stayed underneath you and propped you up until the Coast Guard picked you up. <sighs> wow. His, so his logo on his T-shirt now is the sea lion. Yeah. It's like, hashtag be here tomorrow. Okay. So, yeah, he, um, so he has, I mean, his story is absolutely unbelievable. Sure. Yeah. And so I got the pleasure of traveling with him and being his opening speaker for a West Coast tour in the US. And it was one of the most unbelievable experiences of my life, even more so um, like unbelievable. His wife was one of his psychiatric nurses, and they have the most beautiful relationship. Wow. And his wife's brother is a schizophrenic who has auditory and visual hallucinations, and he was our driver for the West Coast tour. <laughs> So, and the most incredible thing about this is that, like, here is this guy who is just a beautiful human being who absolutely adores his family, 
But he's like talking to the trees and he's like talking to the TV thinking they're having a conversation back with him and he thinks he's like Tom Cruise in alternate reality and, you know, but he is living and he is functioning and he is, you know, functioning in the community yeah. in a really useful way. And it's doable, people. It's, you know, yeah. it's amazing what people can accomplish. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was probably one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Is it... Would you say that experience, and I know you know it's something that you wanted to get into. Did you go? This is where I want to be. This is. Did you feel at, almost at home talking to those people? Like, good God, no. No, um, it's funny. I think people, you know, public speaking is one of those things that you either a lot of people think you're either really good at it or you just shit at it from the start. And yeah. you know, you do have to have a certain amount of self confidence. You know, I remember when I first I hired a speaking coach before I went to the US because I wanted to make sure I got it right. Because the first time that I had ever got on stage, I'd been asked to speak for someone um, who couldn't make it, and I went last minute. I had never told my story before. I burst into tears, forgot my entire speech, yeah. and was like, holy shit, I've got 45 minutes. <laughs> like, what am I going to fucking talk about? And I'm looking at this room full of strangers going, oh, dear God, this is not okay. <laughs> but at the end of that, like, I had, I think it was like two people who came up and were like, you have a really, really inspiring story. You've inspired me to make some changes. And I was like, okay. So there is, like, obviously something. That's, came those out are of the that. only people that have said that to you. Imagine the people that are still taking things oh. on board. Yeah, you know, and, that, and that's what it's all about. You yeah. know, I've delivered speeches at schools and stuff now where, you know, I'm delivering it and the kids aren't looking and they feel like they're completely disengaged. And you're like, oh my God, what am I even doing here? They don't give a shit about what I'm saying right now. Yeah. And then I've had four messages on Instagram being like, today was the day I was going to kill myself. I really wow. needed to hear what you had to say. Wow. Um, you know, and when I went, when I had my speaking coach before I went to the US, because I was like, I'm not doing that when I go to the US. Yeah. Um, he said to me, he was like, everybody has a story. Not everybody can tell a story. Wow. Yeah. Um, and that's what it I kind of. I love that. Yeah. And that's what it kind of came down to. So I learned how to tell my story when I went and did that. But still, you know, the first couple of times, I forgot big parts of it, but nobody else knows because yeah. nobody else knows your story like you do. Yeah. So they didn't know what I was forgetting. Um, what mattered to me was at the end of it, the people who came up and were like, they could completely relate. One thing that you'd said really resonated and hit home with them. And, you know, I think for me, I'm, I guess, kind of fortunate in a way in that I have so many different facets to my story that usually people can relate to more than one aspect yeah, yeah. at one time. So, you know, yeah, you kind of feel like you're hitting the, hitting the spots. And, you know, again, when I had my hip replacement, you know, yeah. a couple of years ago and I died, and it's like, everyone was like, holy shit. And I'm like, yeah, but Matt, the story that I get to tell. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. Did you die? <laughs> yeah. I'm a real life anchor. Bitches, bow down. <laughs> <laughs> bow down. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> chill. <laughs> Oh, yeah. fuck. Oh, I was going to play a soundbite. I thought it might have been relevant. Oh. Check out the big brain. <laughs> That's not relevant, don't worry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I've been wanting to use it for ages. I think it's the Kobe Bryant one. Give it a shot out of a cannon. Nah. Who said? Who said? Bryant for the win! For the win! Anyway. Wow. So what's, um, so what have you been up to that, you then? <laughs> Um, it's been COVID, so not much. Yeah. Um, what have I been doing? I actually, I ended up making the decision to leave the gym during COVID. So, yeah. Really? Yeah, I um. Why? I found that I really liked mobile training. So one of my clients actually gave me like 400 kgs worth of weight stuff, and it's been in the back of my poor little Rav Four that is dying a slow and painful death. Two wheel driving. <laughs> 
Yep, it's awesome. Um, I'd always resisted mobile training. People had always been like, why don't you try this and why don't you try that? And, you know, you've had so many clients that would want to do this. And I was like, no, can't be bothered with the travel time. It's going to take too long. I'm not into it. I tell you what, I've absolutely loved it. I wow. love the freedom of being out and about, being in a different place all the time. And I love the freedom I get to actually hang out with the people and get to know them. Like, you know me, like I'm a very yeah. – I love – meeting people and getting to know them and, you know, hearing about their story and, yep. you know, getting to be a part of the family. And that's what I've had the opportunity to be able to do. And it's been really nice and really refreshing. And, yeah. Wow. I know. So you, just, you were at 98, weren't you? I was. Yeah. I was at 98 for like the full seven years that I've been here. Far out. So I met, like, I met Chris Feather, um, who 98 is his germ. I met him in the U.S., why are you smiling at me? Wasn't oh, no, 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 no. Just get your, get your mind out of the gut. <laughs> I was just thinking, surely you got a rusty story. Um, in the whole seven years that I was at 98, I yeah. probably saw him like four or five times. Yeah, the first okay. time I ever saw him in the gym, I was hip thrusting on the bench opposite. And if you've ever been hip thrusting in a gym and you have someone directly opposite you, it's quite <laughs> awkward if you have eye contact. So this is not how I anticipated I was ever going to meet you. Yeah, just eye contact and he's like... <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Oh. No. Chris trained him. But yeah. um, I met Chris when I was at Jim Jones. So when I was in Hong Kong, I used to travel back and forth to the US. Okay. Like every year to train right. for Half Ironman. And I met Chris at one of the um, – there's a place in Utah called Jim Jones. Okay. Really hardcore. Not the cult. No. Um, <laughs> just so we're clear. <laughs> Is there a Jim Jones – what? Jim Jones was like one of those religious leaders that didn't he have like a suicide patch and everyone died. It wasn't like that. Oh, right. Okay. Jim Jones is just a really hardcore training facility that's like invite only in the middle yeah, of the yeah, yeah. in Utah. Okay. Um, but I met Chris at the advanced seminar there and, and then he was like, well, if you've moved to Sydney. And I, I literally went back to Hong Kong. This was the end of my relationship and went, yeah, I think Sydney. I'm done. I'm going to go to Sydney in three months. See ya. Okay, bye. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> Man. For? Quite a while. That was, that was good fun. Wasn't it? Anything else you want to get off your chest? No, 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 no. I'm busy. <laughs> Do you wanna, why don't you tell everyone your socials, where they can find you? Um, I Probably the easiest way is on Insta, yep. so at Action Alexa. Um, I'm pretty good at responding to DMs, <laughs> especially if you send me a puppy pic. <laughs> yeah. No dick pics, just yeah. dog pics. Thanks. <laughs> 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 Opening line is crucial, people. Not doing. <laughs> if anyone writes me a message that says doing, up to. Oh fuck! Seriously, <laughs> yeah, get a new one, peeps. Seen it all. The original. Um, cool. Hey, thanks for coming on. My absolute pleasure. Cheers, is. It's good fun. All right. All right, guys. Catch ya. Ciao.